Hello and welcome to this Unheard Short. I'm Charlie Pickles. I'm joined, of course, as always, by Peter Franklin. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Peter. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by a special guest, Giles Fraser. Hello, everybody. Hello, Giles. Um, People will be, of course, very familiar with Giles, not just from his weekly columns, but also his outstanding Confessions podcast. Ah, There Uh, we go. Exactly. Good plug. Right at the start. (laughs) Right at the start. I'm probably having a good plug at the end. Anyway, uh, today uh, we have Giles in because we are going to discuss two particular articles that he has written for Unheard, and I do recommend you read both of them at unheard.com. The first is entitled A Party for the Politically Homeless, and the second is called Could Brexit Fix Our Broken Politics? So the kind of general theme, if you like, is going to be looking at the sort of political realignment that we're experiencing, the political vacuum um, that some people feel that we have at the moment. How should politics reshape itself? You know, is the actual model of democracy correct or do we need to change that? Um, And Giles, in his two articles, has offered a couple of potential solutions. Um, But before we come to that, I just want to kick off with, Peter, a little bit of context. So you've done quite a bit for Unheard writing around the kind of political compass, the sort of the, the real political vacuum that exists, because we hear quite often that what we really need is a kind of Remainer, hard Remainer kind of liberal centrist party. And, and actually, that's not the case. No, it's not. Um, I guess you need to think about uh, the political spectrum, you know, the left right classic um, political spectrum is one axis, and therefore one dimensional. Um, and everyone's got to fit along that. Um, a lot of people aren't satisfied with that and say what if you have a second axis at right angles to the first and so you have a two-dimensional space and you have four quadrants and so you still have your left and the right but then the other axis is some other sort of binary so you've got some people say libertarian versus authoritarian others people say um open versus closed but something which is more social or cultural rather than economic and so the idea that the unrepresented quadrants are the the sort of economic and social liberals is actually nonsense because when you look at where voters actually put themselves there's a whole sort of watch of them um, who are kind of economically leftish but socially sort of conservative or socially Giles is putting his hand up here I think I think we've defined Giles here (laughs) culturally conservative in some 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 respect and um, they're the ones unrepresented by conventional politics, even though there's a lot of them. There's no kind of mainstream party, very few mainstream media outlets that represent that point of view. You know, if we were to put sort of labels on them, and this is a bit tricky because this is sort of still thinking in our our kind of two-party system, but we would call it Blue Labour and Red Tory. I mean, it's somewhere in that, that kind of space. Giles, the reason why I wanted that context to be laid out is because uh, your piece, the party for the politically homeless, is actually talking about the SDP. And the SDP could, question mark, uh, provide that political home for the sorts of people we've described. So I want to come on to kind of why we're talking about them now. But first of all, the briefest of histories, you say in your article, remember the heady days of 1981. Now, for anyone like myself who wasn't alive in 1981... 
don't know if I should be offended by that comment or not, Giles, whether I look a lot older, but I, I was not uh, uh-huh. alive in 1981. So for the benefit of myself and others who weren't, can you just give us the kind of potted history? Well, 1981, uh, you have a situation where um, the Labour Party, you could say, looks a little bit like it looks now. The party leader was Michael Foote, who was on the left of the Labour Party, the sort of person that a number of people felt to be sort of disorganised, slightly shambolic, famously wore a scruffy coat, a various duffel coat to various different, to the cenotaph and so forth. Um, <laughs> that, that, so that was one of his great crimes. And then there was a sense that there was a sort of militant tendency around, not a million miles away from momentum. You have Thatcherism in the Tory party. The SDP was invented in 1981, and it had this sort of meteoric rise something like the end of that year the polls had them at, at something like 50 percent i mean it was extraordinary what happened uh, they opened up this this great space um there was there's a gang of four there was people resigning uh, from the labor party to join it and then reality hit when it came to two successive elections they did okay in those elections i think they first one they got something like 25 percent. they went into alliance with the with the liberals and in this alliance they got you know, a substantial whack of the vote nothing like 50 percent but nonetheless i think the sdp came out of the first one with six mps yeah i think five on the 1987 uh, election yeah. pretty soon after that to all intents and purposes they gave up and that's, and that's how you open the piece. In fact, your first line is, it feels like I've just met a ghost. But actually, in the piece, you've met the leader of the SDP. And the yes. SDP are now experiencing, you know, really quite a revival. Yes. You know, certainly if you look at kind of social media, and I know we shouldn't use that as an <clears throat> test, but, you know, there does seem to be a bit of a kind of, um, a bit of dynamism around the party. And, and that's largely now because of this new declaration. Why is this exciting? Well, I think Brexit and the new declaration. So one of the things that's happened to the SDP, the sort of continuity SDP, as it were, uh, they continued, by the way, in sort of very local groups. So when the main party, the National Party, was disbanded, local groups had their own bank accounts, they had their own constitutions, they were able to remain in in places like East Yorkshire and Wales and a number of places, uh, Glasgow, they continued with local groups. And they became increasingly Eurosceptic. That's the other puzzle about this. The people associate them because of the Liberal Alliance with being very Philo-European. In fact, they moved quite rapidly away from that, especially those who were under the influence of David Owen. And now, I think David Owen came out uh, in 2016 as being a lever. So this party that exists now, sort of beginning to bubble up, was there for, as you say, the blue Labour-y type... um, the, the, the quadrant which is, I guess, centrist but also more communitarian. And their very nice party leader, uh, William Clouston, wrote, with the help of, I think, another, a number of other people in the SDP, this new declaration. And it's a, uh, a short manifesto which basically plugs into precisely the quadrant that uh, Peter was describing. It's more socially conservative, it's, it believes in the nation, it believes in community, it talks about the importance of family, but when it comes to the economy, it doesn't want to have a sort of oppositional relationship between the state 
workers and business. It tries to position itself very differently there. So it's, uh, it, it's exactly in that quadrant that, that Peter describes as potentially third-party material. And I just want to read a quote that you picked, um, Giles, from the New Declaration, because I, I think it is very instructive of the positioning that the SDP is taking. It says, first and foremost, we are Democrats. The scale and vehemence of the reaction against the result of the 2016 referendum by Britain's cultural and political elites was striking. The evident disdain of the Westminster class for, among others, many elderly and low-income voters revealed that the powerful only tolerate democracy when their view prevails. And Peter, that will very strongly resonate with very large groups in the country. We know it resonates because when Theresa May was on that agenda at the sort of outset of her premiership, It was really very well received and, you know, obviously her 2017 general election campaign went disastrously wrong. But at the beginning of it, she was doing really well and it was because she spoke up for that agenda. But we know that people support it, they're desperate for it and they're they're waiting for someone to not only sort of proclaim it, but give the impression that they're sincere about it. I mean, that sort of quite nicely leads us on to the second um, article, Giles, that I wanted to talk about. Um, Because in a sense, you know, those, you know, quite infamous words now that Theresa May spoke about the burning injustices was an illustration of one part of the Conservative Party. It's that part that probably is a bit more communitarian, um, is more focused on social justice, should we put it, probably doesn't think the markets, free markets alone, are the answer. And yet what seems to have happened is that whole agenda has been uh, jettisoned, I mean, granted largely due to Brexit and the oxygen that that has taken out of everything else. But what we've been left with is actually a Conservative Party that seems to be a bit more on the kind of free market, kind of less on the sort of social justice side of things. I mean, maybe just because it hasn't been time, but certainly it feels a bit more like that. And Giles, the point that you make in the second piece, so could Brexit fix our broken politics, is that actually we have this two-party system, um, and this will lead back into the question about whether the SDP can actually rise, but we have this two-party system when really we should have a four-party system. C- can you just briefly explain what you mean by that? I mean, it's not as simple as I'm about to say it, but uh, we have two main parties, and these two main parties... Uh, represent an extraordinary sort of bandwidth of political opinion within them. Um, To the extent that a party leader will find it almost impossible to please all of the people all of the time within his or her party. And that means that um, a party leader's job is always going to be an extraordinary exercise in party management. So if you look at the Labour Party, for instance, the Labour Party's position on Brexit is this sort of you know, studied ambiguity. Um, You don't quite really know what Jeremy Corbyn thinks about this. And that's probably because if he expressed any sort of opinion, he'd annoy somebody within his party. Now, this is an extraordinary way to be a party leader. If parties are this big, then to lead them, you have to be on the one hand or on the other, or you have to, you know, whatever the nice political word for lying is, you have to do that. You know, you have to you have to work, walk this. The same is true of Theresa May, as, as as we can see. Now, I'm no massive fan of proportional representation, but proportional representation, it seems to me, would break up 
these parties. Fast Post the Post heavily encourages a two-party system. And if we had a proportional representation system, which I've always disliked for a whole load of other reasons, the one thing it would do, it would break up these two fatbergs clogging up the parliamentary plumbing. <laughs> Revolting image there for our uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> um, it is, I mean, it, you know, I also have tended to be against proportional representation and I, and I think I probably still am, but I would, I would share your sort of awakening if we can call it that Giles I suppose Brexit has created because this has been such a huge and divisive issue that you can't paper over the different views in the parties but if we do think back to for example the 2015 election and um, so before you know Brexit was this huge issue although obviously the referendum was was the big um, uh, kind of ticket item then you know UKIP secured almost four million votes in the 2015 election and ended up with one seat and that seat only because it was a Tory defector. The Liberal Democrats in that election got about 2.4 million votes so significantly less than UKIP and ended up with eight seats. Peter that doesn't seem to be a particularly democratic approach. Not viewed that way But you've got to remember that the effect of proportional representation that really does deliver, sort of does translate votes directly into seats, is that you do get small parties wielding disproportionate influence in coalition negotiations. The weakest argument for PR is that it's fairer. No, there's fair and unfair things about all... Um, systems. The strong argument is the one that Giles has made, which is we need something to break up the duopoly duopoly and these very now ungainly and very dysfunctional internal coalitions that are the two main parties. Now the, the question is whether PR would actually deliver that. Because you have PR in other nations, right? And you have those sort of centre-left and centre-right blocks breaking up, except they reform under, you know, in Denmark, you do have the right block and the left block of parties. And I don't see um, those systems representing the unrepresented quadrant either, except in the negative sense that you have, you know, far-right parties or far-left parties coming in on a populist ticket um, wanting to disrupt the system. Let's say it's not fair and let's say Giles's arguments are far more compelling than the argument that, you know, we actually need a, a system that more broadly kind of represents people. In reading your piece, Giles, I would identify kind of four sort of reasons why you're saying that PR might be a better model. And, and one is, first past the post has always been said, well, it brings us stability. And actually it's not bringing us stability. No. So kind of one of the main reasons for it, it's not. The second is around connection between a local MP and their constituents. The third is around putting the national interest first rather than the party interest first. And lastly, the fourth is around kind of transparency. So rather than having these, you know, sort of slightly behind the scenes sort of negotiations, as Peter was saying, within parties, actually you would put it all out in the open and say, well, here are different parties representing different things. The negotiation would have to be much more public. Is is that a fair summary? Those are the big issues for me. I mean, the reason I don't like um, proportional representation, and I'm a fan of first-past-the-post, is slightly different to the one that Peter just outlined, is that I have this slightly romantic idea of 
uh, a relationship between a community and their MP. Maybe it's a little bit like a vicar in a parish. Maybe I have that sort of fantasy, in which you know the vicar, the the the, the MP lives there, known by the community, and there's a sense of connection that goes from the community through the MP into Parliament. Now that requires smaller constituencies. By the way, that's also why I'm a Brexiter, is that I don't like the disconnect between people and power. So I want these two things to be as close as possible. For me, it's a very strong argument why I've always been in favour of first past the post. But actually, if you look at the way our politics has just broken up, we really do need a way of allowing the different views to form coalitions in different ways. So Peter is right to say that in any political system, there will be coalitions. And in a first-past-the-post system, you'd have smaller groups and they'd form coalitions with each other. But they'd be open public coalitions. In our system, the coalition within the Conservative Party is a coalition that takes place in the tea rooms and the bars of the House of Commons. And Peter, I mean, how far... We did have the coalition not that long ago... Mm. Um, I mean, how far were those negotiations and the trade-offs and the red lines public? Well, it all happened so quickly and in conditions of considerable secrecy, although obviously the coalition agreement was subsequently published. But, yeah, we don't know quite what went on behind those closed doors, either with the successful negotiations between the the Conservatives and and the Lib Dems, or indeed the unsuccessful ones between the Lib Dems and Labour. But there is something more transparent, just in terms of outcome, about a coalition that exists between two political parties than there is about the sorts of negotiations that might happen between, say, the ERG and the the rest of the party. I mean, that's still a coalition, um, but those negotiations are utterly hidden from us. I take you back to the 2015 election, where Ed Miliband maintained, absolutely, oh no, I'm I'm, I'm not going to negotiate with the SNP, right? I'm just going to make an offer, they can take it or leave it. I don't think how each party intended to to negotiate a, a hung parliament. I don't think that was at all transparent. And what would have happened afterwards <clears throat> would have been completely different to the sort of threats and promises made during the election campaign. So, no, I don't think it necessarily guarantees transparency either way. What it might guarantee, though, is that it, it, it delivers such a shock to the system. Most of the time, I don't think... That is a good thing in politics, but now we sort of desperately need... We're at, we're at a time of when the weaknesses of the existing system, exposed by the stresses of Brexit, are just becoming um, unsustainable, and something is needed to, to allow a fresh start. It's still very unlikely that the Turkeys will vote for Christmas. You know, I think we're stuck, and I don't see any, any prospect of the sorts of things that I would want including, by the way, the SDP. I don't know if I want to do it or not, but something like that. I'm not very optimistic about um, them doing terribly well. Well, that, And things. that is what I want to come back to. So to wrap up the uh, discussions, we are running out of time, is then what does this all mean for the SDP? So if we're saying this is a political party that potentially represents the politically homeless, of which a lot of people feel that they, you know, you have to look at various Twitter bios to see that a lot of people feel they fall into that category. Giles, you fall into that category, yeah. say in your piece, yeah. you know, you don't know who you will vote for. Um, it feels like there is an appetite for the SDP. It feels like they you know, are creating 
you know, something of a, you know, if not a wave, a ripple uh, in politics. And yet we have this system that is going to make it very, very difficult for them to break through. So do we think that the SDP and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to, who they're trying to represent could be the impetus to shake the system up? Or do we think actually it's all going to collapse again? Well, you've got to remember that under first past the posts, the Labour Party emerged from nowhere. Under first past the posts, SDP Mark One very nearly did break the mould. And if the election had come a bit earlier, or if the Falklands had happened, of course, that yes, it could have been an earthquake. It could have, you know, it wasn't far away. And then you can say, to some extent, UKIP managed to, despite being discriminated against in terms of seats won uh, relative to votes won, um, they did nevertheless um, kind of force. David Cameron's hand into having the Brexit referendum. So yes, you can have realignments under a first-past-the-post system, but it will take something like defections from both the Labour and Conservative parties to this new party um, to make something like that happen. That's a more optimistic assessment than I would have, but I'm pleased to hear it. The other problem I see is that... um, this sort of new alliance that you might say under a sort of blue labourish type of flag would bring people together who've been implacable enemies before. So, for example, you will have most of the people, as I understand it, who are coming into the SDP are coming from the Labour Party or from previously unaligned. But there's also uh, a number of people coming over from UKIP and they have just selected... Patrick O'Flynn to mm. fight what may be the forthcoming Peterborough by-election. So this is the previously a UKIP MEP. Now, you know, someone like me on the outside looking at potentially Blue Labour space, SDP, I think oh, I quite like that. But I am I really am put off by the UKIP presence. That's my particular aversion. You know, in terms of the sort of different alliances that it would require, I don't know quite how stable they'd be. And it's interesting you say that actually because we've previously tried to get together a sort of red Tory, Blue Labour discussion. And actually there's quite some reluctance on the part of some in Blue Labour to never mind engage with the UKIPers, but actually to engage publicly with Red Tories. So I'm afraid we have run out of time. A fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Peter and Giles. Um, I said I'd give another final push to Confessions, uh, Giles's fantastic podcast. Yeah, yeah. You want to give us a one line why everybody should tune in? So the idea of Confessions is to do people's political views as a sort of biography. So it begins as biography, and then it understands where people's life, the universe and everything views come out of. And actually, it sort of works. It really is brilliant and and particularly relevant, I think, to the discussion we've had today are the two episodes, one with Roger Scruton and one with um, Morris Glassman, talking about, you know, a lot of these sorts of issues. So thank you so much for listening. As I say, thank you, Giles and Peter. Um, Please do subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do tune in to the next one. Mm